0: We can talk about the topic of the moral imaginations, what's meant by it, but more than that, the Catholic moral imagination. And actually, the way where Tony and I are dividing it up today is the title of the course, I think, it was something like the Catholic Moral Imagination," and then there's like a subtitle. I don't remember what it was. Um, but I specifically am going to talk about the topic of just the moral imagination, and then Tony's going to talk about well what is? moral imagination. And in some ways, if the two ways we get to know truth are through reason or like philosophy and revelation or theology, that this topic actually divides up kind of nicely that what I'm going to talk about just the moral imagination is how is it just as every human being, whether Catholic or not, can, through the imagination, better understand and know truth. Um, Tony is going to come behind with the revelation aspect, especially, um, maybe I don't know But the, the, the two combined together um, Now Where this topic came from Specifically um, Why we want, Tony and I wanted to do this as a course Is that we are both third order Dominicans And our third order Dominican Group In the upstate That we read different things once a month And we talk about them And last year the book that we were reading was It's a very good book but it's called Theology and Sanity by Frank Sheed. If, I don't know if anyone's ever read it. Um, and for the most part, it's very good. He's, Frank Sheed was an Englishman who's actually G.K. Chesterton's editor. Um, but there was this extremely unsatisfying chapter that led to a lot of internal arguments within the Third Order Dominican group. Where Frank Sheed started talking about how one of the, the biggest obstacles for right thinking was the imagination. And Tony and I were a little affronted by this because we argued like no, the imagination is actually oftentimes the means by which one comes to know and love the truth, um rather than an obstacle. And part of the problem was that the guy I mean, she had sort of a very limited view of the imagination that he was arguing from. And that he was just arguing like using the term to refer simply to daydreaming. So if you're trying to think, do the work of thinking about theology and you keep getting distracted because in your imagination you start thinking about, well, you're going to eat for dinner, um, that, okay, it's going to be an obstacle. But that's such a very limited understanding. And so this led to a, one, us talking about wanting to do a, a course on well, what is the imagination properly understood and how does it actually help us. Um, and part of that is That I want to start a little bit with Is Thomas Aquinas That Thomas Aquinas As Catholics He talked about how we One of the main things he talked about is as human beings How we come to know truth There's a fancy term for that in Philosophy, epistemology How do we come to know things And The primary means By which we come to know things Is through the use of our senses God gave us senses, and it's through our senses that we interact with reality, and then we interpret that reality. Uh, Now, we all know when we think of the term our senses, we all think immediately of our five external senses of touch, taste, hearing, sight, smell. Um, But what we often forget is that we don't just have external senses. We also have internal senses. And the internal senses include things like memory. And they also include the imagination. Um, which, in the simplest sense, we can say the imagination is the ability to make images in our minds. To, in, to, from reality, from our interpretation of reality, um, and now that we've experienced, we take that reality and we can make images in our minds. Um, and if you want to know, well, ultimately... We can say what distinguishes human beings from mere animals, that animals have senses, they have the external senses, they have some very limited internal senses, but the being able to abstractly um think in this like deep way. In using a properly ordered imagination is actually one of the things that only a human being can properly, properly do. Um, that's why it's a, it's a very important thing to understand as a human being, to be truly human. is a, it, a very important to have a proper understanding of the role of the imagination. Now, the term, the moral imagination, that, what does it simply mean by a moral imagination? Or another way you could say, actually, many ways is a properly ordered imagination. That this has been something that human beings have been thinking about and striving towards and writing about and working on for time immemorial. That Plato was fascinated by the concept of the moral imagination, even though he never used the term a moral imagination. If you ever heard the, the term the divine madness, um, that this is, was Plato's trying to search after like, w- what the moral imagination is. But the term itself, the first, the first place it actually ever made its appearance, putting together a moral imagination, came from, bless you, the um, English statesman at the time of sort of the American Revolution into the 1700s, beginning of the 1800s, named Edmund Burke. Um, Edmund Burke, one of the greatest um, members of parliament, statesman of all time. And he had a great – it's a little bit longer quote, um, but he had a great quote where he talked about the French Revolution and why – what exactly they were doing on top of just the general evil, just killing people, but why it was um, so – sort of perverse in what they were in that, their project. And most of what I'm talking about, the term moral imagination, the best explanations of it ever written is short essay um, by Russell Kirk, um, American, mid-20th century Catholic writer, um, wrote a lot of – tends to be more towards political philosophy. Um, so his books, if you ever want to probably understand the American – Founding, etc. His books, um, "The Roots of American Order" who's one of the most famous ones. "The Conservative Mind" is particularly good too. Um, he, but he has lots of good, good things. But his essays are especially good. Um, but it's one on the moral imagination is where everything. I, I don't come up with original thoughts ever. I just find people that have good original thoughts and then rip them off. So it's from him that I'm ripping them off. And he didn't either. He just ripped his ideas off from T.S. Eliot in his famous essay based on a series of lectures he gave at Virginia, University of Virginia called After Strange Gods um, which are hard to find because they were put out of print because in the beginning of it he talks about religious pluralism and how no society in the history of the world has ever lasted very long while being religiously pluralistic Um, and so but there's a phrase in there that has been sort of misinterpreted over the years to sort of say, oh, look, he's being a racist because he said the phrase in there that no society can last long with a large amount of free-thinking Jews. And what he meant by it back at that time was there was a stereotype of that the free-thinking Jew was a stereotype of sort of the secular atheist because of the fact that Freud, Marx, Marx, they were all. They were both atheist Jews, um, and so that was what he's referring to. He's not talking about the race of people. He's not, but he's referring to secular atheism. Um, that if there's a large amount of secular atheism that dominates the philosophy and the thinking of a society, it's not going to last long. But because people don't think through things properly, um, it's there's I think there's only one cop, like one copy or printing of it you can find anymore. Um, so anyway, but those were most of what I keep getting everything from. But Edmund Burke's quote, um, I can't go too long. But anyway, talking about the French Revolution, he says, all the decent drapery of life is to be rudely torn off. So think about what they're doing in the French Revolution, the guillotines, chopping people's heads off, including the king and the queen. Um, but he thought that the worst thing that they ever did wasn't necessarily even chopping the king's head off, but chopping the queen's head off. Um, so, all the decent drapery of life is to be rudely torn off. All the superadded ideas furnished from the wardrobe of a moral imagination, which the heart owns and the understanding ratifies, as necessary to cover the defects of our naked, shivering nature and to raise it to dignity in our own estimation, are to be exploded as a ridiculous. Absurd and antiquated fashion. On this scheme of things, a king is but a man, a queen is but a woman, a woman is but an animal, and an animal not of the highest order. All homage paid to the sex in general as such, and without distinct views, is to be regarded as romance and folly. And on the scheme of this barbarous barbarous philosophy, which is the offspring of cold hearts and muddy understanding in which is as void of solid wisdom as it's destitute of all taste and elegance, laws are to to be supported by their own tares and by the concern which individuals may find in them from their own private speculations. Now, I'm going to stop before I go too far there. That without a moral imagination, a proper understanding of things, like there's a reason why the end result is the French Revolution. Let me explain why that is by explaining what the moral imagination actually properly is. Um, so, When I, like I said, Thomas Aquinas talked about you come to know truth and things through the use of the senses, and this also includes the internal senses such as imagination. Now, it's important to start with the idea that as Catholics, we believe that reality is something that is received. God is, like so when he says, I am, when he was, or revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush. That the ultimate definition of God, the Logos, is that he is reality itself. Now, as human beings, we stand passively before that reality. Um, So God is, but we try to come to know what is. So we try to learn what truth is. And we call, like, truth is something that corresponds to that reality. We try to know what goodness is. Goodness is something that corresponds to the way God created it to actually work. And we try to come to know beauty, which is harder to describe, but it's that there's something about this reality that is attractive, like a giant magnet, that brings us towards him. And we call it like, this attractive nature of reality we ends up, beca- like, evidencing itself as beauty. Um, now, because as human beings we have this natural desire towards God... To know Him and to love Him, etc. That God built into our very nature, like I said, this sort of, this magnet that sort of pulls us towards Him. Now, but we're passive before it. Remember that. We aren't deciding what the reality is. We are ultimately receiving it. Now, so what the moral imagination is that time we can say that our imagination you, through the use of creativity and thought and everything is able to draw us towards what things actually are. Now, there's an important part for understanding the imagination is we have to understand, first of all, what creation actually is. So God... We say, ultimately, when we look at in the Bible with the the act of creation, when God creates the heavens and the earth, that there's two parts to creation. There's the bringing something out of nothing. And then there's the bringing order to that something. So God, there's nothing. And then he says, like, let there be. And boom, there's something Um, that we say. God created something ex nihilo. He brought something out of nothing. But then what does God do after he brings that something out of nothing? Well, when he creates man, so the ex nihilo brings something out of nothing is the first part. That when he creates man, he gives man the job to bring order, to participate in the bringing order to that thing that was created. So what is Adam given the job of doing? Naming the animals. Like, so he, because remember, man being made in God's image, that God is a creator. So just like a five-year-old wants to do things just like the, the, the parent. They want to the, the make the cookies like the parent. They want to participate in the projects that the parents are working on. God, from the very beginning, he lets man participate within his projects to be a creator like him. So, so in the very beginning, Adam's given the job, name the animals. Um, be like God. Um, And name the animals. Is is Adam going to do a better job than God? If God didn't come up with the names, like no, God could have come up with cooler names. Um, He's God, but he lets man participate from the union. So we say that man is, bless you, is a sub creator. That God gives man the ability to use our reason and our God given abilities to bring order to creation, to make it more beautiful. What does he not allow man to do from the beginning? To create ex nihilo, Meaning that God, when we talk about reality being received, God gives the stuff of reality. Um, But there are confines, we should say, to what we can do in bringing order. So, for instance, like, think about the... Was it the... Was it the first law of thermodynamics that... Energy is neither created nor destroyed, but simply transformed. Second law. There you go. Thank you. Needed need an engineer. Um, I obviously not, did not study science. But anyway, like we can't create matter. Like you can't, scientists can't go in a lab and just like make something exist that wasn't there before. Um, like there are natural boundaries to the universe. We can't create matter. We, um, we can't think of something purely original. Um, and actually, this is one of the proofs of God's existence. You can't close your eyes and think up a new color that doesn't exist anywhere. Like, we can't. Like, there are confines to reality that we have to work within. Just because you don't like gravity, you can't just, like, think gravity away. Um, it's going to be there. So there are confines to our bringing or, creator, order to creation. But we are allowed to create so with the moral imagination and I have lots of good quotes but I don't have time to go through tons of them um, is we can say that it is um, anytime within literature especially because that's where we're going to focus that you have a writer that understands what his proper role within creation is and that is he is bringing order but more than that he is using his creativity, his imagination, his means of bringing order to teach us something more about what actually it is. And he, the thing about the the author is, there's a lot of room within the created order for "quote unquote" creativity. Um, so there's. Um, Like I said, we can't come up with a new color. But there's that quote I put at the top of your page from J.R. Tolkien, which is, I think, key for understanding the moral imagination. When he says, why, for instance, should the sun be golden and the grass green? In fairy, they may be sometimes entirely different combination. And when we return from a fairy tale wherein the sun is perhaps blue and the grass violet, we notice as if for the first time the very peculiarity of our own gilded star – and the deep verdure of our grasses. We once again see them for what they are rather than for what Uncle Fred tells us and what they are is magical. Meaning that by you by coming up with creative stories, coming up with creative things, the, they are able to actually help us better understand what T.S. Eliot called the permanent things. That there's certain permanent things that they can't change. And by using the the... the, the what they can change, they can help us better understand those permanent things we cannot change. So what are the permanent things they cannot change? They cannot change what good and evil are. Um, so good is always good because God, good is defined by that which is sort of corresponding to God. Like the way it is. God can't tomorrow become evil if he wanted and good if become evil. He can't change, even God himself can't change that because they are defined by what is. Um, so likewise, an author not being able to create seal, cannot change that. But also, so an author teaches us about those permanent things we cannot change, including especially human nature. Um, that if you ever say the, 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 the standard of a good author with a properly ordered moral imagination is one that teaches a proper understanding of human nature. Um, and that's why when Edmund Burke talked about them lacking a moral imagination, what he meant is that they have this false understanding of human nature um, that they were saying, that the reason why we can have treat Mary Antoinette as a queen is because if you have a proper understanding of human nature, of everyone being made in the image and likeness of God, ultimately, everyone is a queen, or every woman is a queen. Um, And But it would be impractical to treat every single woman in the world with the reverence due to them as a queen. Um, And thus, we have, he would say, we have one example to be like a shining example of like, this is what every woman is supposed to be. Um, It's this proper understanding of the moral imagination. We understand the dignity of the human person. We understand what a human being is supposed to be. Now, there are other types of imagination. So if a proper... Imagination, moral imagination, is one that falls within the confines of reality, that is not trying to create something new, but rather just bringing order so we better understand what actually is. That um, there are other types of imaginations that try to do the opposite. That opposed to a moral imagination, Russell Kirk talks about, you know, like, um, two L's. He talks about what he calls an idyllic imagination. An idyllic imagination is an imagination that fancies itself that it can actually create out of nothing. That it doesn't. This is actually this is going back all the way to what to the original sin. It's the idea that hey, there's no, our job isn't to bring order, but rather to try to create out of nothing. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is the knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil? That in Hebrew, when it talks about the knowledge of something, it means an experiential knowledge. Not just like an intellectual knowledge. So the experience of good and evil. The ultimately, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the idea that God tells us, reveals to us what is good and evil. But we don't get to decide for ourselves what's good and evil. What Adam and Eve, when they wanted to be like God, they wanted to decide good and evil for themselves. They weren't happy... They want to be able to create something out of nothing. And this is our prime temptation all the time. We want to create reality for ourselves. We want to decide what's true for ourselves. Um, and this is what an idyllic imagination does. It's like, well, let's reject human nature as we've come to know it through both reason and revelation. And instead, we will write things where, that are just contrary to human nature as it actually is. And he used the example of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, which actually there's a great quote in there He calls him the insane Socrates of the National Assembly, that he was the philosopher behind the ideas of the French Revolution, that he was – that he first and foremost taught like a backwards view of human nature, that, he, that there's no such thing as original sin, that you are like this empty vessel – on, in which you could decide sort of truth and goodness for yourself. He was the sort of original relativist. Decide reality for yourself. This is the idyllic imagination. And actually, I think a great example, if you want to understand the difference between the idyllic imagination and the moral imagination, is within two different television shows, I often use this analogy, between that of Seinfeld and Friends. That Seinfeld is the moral imagination. And the reason why is in Seinfeld, you have characters... I assume most people have at least seen an episode of Seinfeld... that do wicked things. They live as reprobates. They live lives um, that they shouldn't be living. But every time they do, reality reasserts itself against them. In that their lives, it makes them miserable. Their choices make them miserable. And ultimately, even in the very final episode... That they're trying to live these complete lives of selfishness and self determination, the result ends up with them all in prison. Um, because, like, you can try, but reality will reassert itself, morally as well as physically. Um, so, just like if you decide that the physical reality isn't real and you want to jump off the roof, the physical reality of gravity, like, you will hit the ground. And the same with morally. As opposed to friends, Or they live the exact same lives as the characters in Seinfeld, but the end result is that they are happy. Um, And that it sort of fulfills all their desires. Which is a lie. Because it won't. Um, So you can see that that is a false understanding of the idyllic imagination. Now, the thing about the idyllic imagination, though, is that it ultimately leads to... uh, There's a... Like I said, the literary term would be "on we and we." Am I pronouncing that? You're the former English teaser back there. You can pronounce it. But it leads towards. Um, oh, here you go. Um, as Edmund Burke put it, that that it it um, terminates in disillusion and boredom. That because reality ultimately asserts itself that an idyllic imagination always l- ends in this sort of this boredom, this disillusion, realizing, oh wait, this isn't actually true. Um, this doesn't actually fulfill, etc. And you can, you know, when you're reading different works, you can tell like, um, I don't know if you're reading a Lawrence Stern, not Lawrence Stern. Is it Lawrence Stern? Or whatever, um, that there, there, there's different authors. You can say like, oh, these characters, that is not how human nature actually works. Um, and th- and they don't have to be consciously Christian necessarily to be moral. That actually usually the more subtle the the artist, like the more subtle they are in the preaching. Like sometimes you read something and you're like, oh, this is so heavy-handed talking about human nature, etc. But sometimes you're like, oh, this is actually very subtle, better, proper understanding of like the human person and how reality works, how sin works. Um, I mean, you can see this in movies, you can see this in books, you can see this in stories. Um, but this boredom of the idyllic imagination, what it results ultimately in is because what, what it's doing is it's attempting to create out of nothing. It's like, well, can we create for ourselves? Can create, create for ourselves? And this is why when you ever wonder like modern art, modern books, like what do they have to do? Is they try to create, they look for some, a new reality, they don't find it. And so they go to the next place and look for a new reality and they don't find it. And so ultimately all that's left is basically they end up fi- finding the perverse. And so that's why um, the third form of imagination is the diabolic imagination. That usually is the end result of the idyllic imagination. It's, well, if God is reality, we're trying to create for ourselves. We can't because it's impossible. So maybe we'll try to shock. We'll try to create, quote-unquote, new emotions um, by shocking people. And you ends up sort of resulting into, well will just sort of settle into the anti-reality, that of evil, um, and the diabolic. And these are where you'll come across things, and this is the works where like, not only is present like a false view of human nature, but it, well, a perverse view of human nature. A perverse, and I'd say the ultimate example of this, of the diabolic imagination, is actually one of the most famous novels of all time, but that is of um, Ulysses by James Joyce. Um, which is Like the quintessential example of the diabolic imagination. Though, interestingly, I did recently learn that despite writing perverse and diabolic books, he actually became returned to the church and died as a good Catholic. Um, But, okay, so that's with the moral imagination in general. Sorry, I went five minutes into your time, Tony. The uh, Catholic imagination.
1: Is it uh, comes from a uh, the term comes from a, a Catholic priest, I think Chicago, Father Andrew Greeley. You familiar with Father Greeley? It's a rather notorious uh, not not that type of notorious priest, but he wrote some risque novels and uh, mysteries and things. But his uh, yeah, the phrase the "Catholic imagination," uh, that Father Greeley. Uh, coin is, uh, is just basic uh, uh, Catholic philosophy uh, is that God reveals himself to us through his creation through this world that's what Father Newman calls uh, sacramental realism that grace uh, Grace comes to us through stuff, stuff, things. That's why in the Catholic church, we have incense and candles and statues and stained glass and priests dressed up and vestments. And we have sacraments. Grace comes to us through sacraments. We baptize a a child. We don't just say, you're baptized. We actually pour water on them. In some cases, duck them in a river somewhere. We actually do things. When we take the Eucharist, we actually take the body and blood, the true presence of Christ, under the auspices of bread and wine. We don't, we don't call it, we don't call it a symbol like the Protestants do. I, I used to be a Methodist for many years so I can talk about Protestants. I've got street cred, right? so, but uh, we don't just call it a, a, a symbol. We think it's real, we believe it's real. Uh, Flannery O'Connor, we got, when we get to Flannery O'Connor you know Flannery O'Connor from Georgia? A great southern Catholic writer. The famous story about O'Connor when she was real young, probably in her early 20s, was at a dinner in New York with uh, a bunch of famous writers. Uh, Mary McCarthy was very well known at that time. A bunch of what we would call elitist now. And uh, the discussion got around to the to the, sac- to the church somehow. Anyway, uh some of you may have heard, it's a famous story of uh, Flannery O'Connor, she was at that dinner and the discussion got around to the church and, and one of the writers uh, a very sophisticated writer said I think that the, that the uh, Eucharist is a beautiful symbol and Flannery O'Connor piped up and said if it's just a symbol, to hell with it It sort of shocked everybody there but being uh, about the most solidly grounded Catholic has ever existed. Probably, uh, her her objection was: if it's not real, don't bother with it. Don't bother with it. So anyway, the moral imagination of Greeley is that grace is uh, channeled to us through God's creation. So when T.J. talked about uh, God created the world. he um, infused creation with uh, his grace. So the great uh, distinction is that always in theology is between nature and grace. So. Enjoy. what theologians call the horizontal and the vertical aspects of reality, that we, we live on a, on a horizontal plane of, of, of nature, of creation, of things, of some stuff, uh, of time and space and everything around us. We live on a material plane, right, in matter. as a a physicist would say, a world of matter colliding atoms or whatever. It's It's also, since it's created by God, who made it good, remember, in Genesis, God created the world and called it good. So it's also a world, it's a world of beauty and truth and goodness. It's a world of, Beautiful blue skies and green grass and mountains and trees and rivers and 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 uh, in in beauty because God created it and 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 found it good. and 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 when he created man, he created him in the image of God, imajo Dei, the image of God. So he created man, men and women, uh, good. So, in that sense, uh, creation is like the psalmist says. This is Psalm 19 the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, talks to us. Night unto night shows knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth. He hath set a tabernacle for the sun. This this, uh, vision of the world as as almost an Eden, which it was. An Eden. A a paradise. But what happened? (laughs) What happened? What happened was a concept called the fall, original sin. We messed it up. <laughs> In other words, we, 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 messed, we messed things up. So if you turn, that was Psalm 19. If you just turn over to Psalm 22, the psalmist says, My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? I am a worm and no man. I am a reproach despised of men. They that see me laugh me to scorn. They shake their head. I am a worm. All of a sudden, what happened to this beautiful idyllic creation? It's just two Psalms apart. And if you read the Psalms, there's this constant constant interplay between praise the Lord and oh man, where's God? <laughs> How come he doesn't come in straight and straighten this mess out? You got the, that, that tension. So we talk about the, uh, the Catholic imagination in art. Of course, the imagination is the root of all art, all great art. Poetry, philosophy, well not philosophy, poetry, uh, painting, sculpture, architecture, what we call a, the liberal arts, the arts that exist only for the purpose of finding truth as opposed to the practical arts, like engineering and, and science and so forth, have a, whose aim is to, uh, to make something. The purpose of liberal arts is just to find truth. So, since this is a beautiful world that is also ugly, it's 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 also there's truth here, but there's also lies. There's beauty here, but there's horrible ugliness. And there's goodness here, but there's egregious sins. We don't. We didn't know that before. We certainly know that after the last few weeks. There's some really nasty sins in this world among uh, God's creation. So, how, so, so, what, so, how does the how does the uh, the artist deal with that? If the, if the purpose of of, of art. Is to lead us toward um, toward God. Then the artist is sort of is sort of uh, the great artist. We we're we were, uh, we were going to talk about T.J. We mentioned Jane Austen, uh, Chesterton, uh, Flannery O'Connor, uh, T.S. Eliot, Bob Dylan. Uh, the that the great what the great artists have in common is this search for ultimate truth, beauty and goodness through the imagination. It's what it's what Flannery O'Connor talks about, that the the effort to to hold race and nature together we're not separating them see if you see if we if we if we if we only look at what's here then we we we, we fall into materialism which is which is the common um, viewpoint of modern society this is all there is this is all there is it's what you we just we just uh, matter we're just creatures of matter we're just atoms there's no ultimate meaning we're just here by accident. That is the dominant position of Western civilization. It has been for 100 years. There's no ultimate meaning to life. Uh, we're just colliding atoms, and when we die, we're gone, and that's all there is to it. It's, it's essentially, essentially nihilism, because we live in a... I think it was Flannery O'Connor who said, we breathe nihilism with the air we live in, because that's... We live in a post-Christian society, so that's simply the world, we, the world we inherit, is a world of nihilism. There is no ultimate meaning. So, so it's ultimately nihilistic. You know what nihilism, the philosophy, is nothing really. Nothing really means anything. There is no ultimate meaning. It's a logical extension of atheism. If you reject God, you have to eventually reject all ultimate meaning. You can't have one without the other. You can't say there's no God, God's dead, and say, Oh yeah, it's a meaningful, beautiful world. You can't do that. It doesn't make any sense the great German atheist Nietzsche had the had the Fortitude to say, yes, God is dead, and it's all meaningless. So do whatever you want to do. Do it with power. But at the same token, if you reject creation, then you become a spiritualist, a theosophist, uh, a new ager. If, uh, if you reject the reality of God's creation, then you're basically float off into. Spiritualism. Uh, so the, what the great artist does is hold those two in tension. It is, as is T.S. Eliot called, the time of tension between birth and dying. There's always that uh, creative tension between a world of shadows and light, so to speak. Because although God reveals himself through his creation, he doesn't. He also remains hidden. There's a famous essay called The Hidden God. God never reveals himself fully. Except through Jesus. And since Jesus ain't here, (laughs) right here in this room. So he's in the Eucharist, of course. So God, God is God is able to be perceived, but not... There's an old quote that says, God reveals enough of himself to enable us to believe, but not too much to destroy our free will. Does that make sense? Because we are free. That's, that's the other... Another part of this equation is freedom. It's what the great Swiss theologian Balthazar called man's existential freedom. Man is free. We are creatures of, of, of free will. We can do whatever we want to do. It, it, there will be consequences. And if you read some of these works we're going to talk about, if you read Flannery O'Connor, there's a lot of people that do some really really uh, unhealthy things. And so we we can do just about whatever, although there will be consequences. Like teaching mentioned, we can pretend or we can pretend we can reject God's creation and reinvent it. We can reinvent. We live in a time now where it's it's almost become commonplace to reinvent reality, to reinvent yourself, to reimagine yourself. You know, sometimes identify as uh, Roger Federer, but it doesn't help. So, they're, 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 they're a seven foot tall basketball player. <laughs> we live in a time of insanity, really, because uh, we have uh, said, well, all this doesn't matter. See, you got, you got these two extremes. because can say, okay. Flannery O'Connor says you reject reality, you, you end up with sentiment, sentimentality. Because you forget the reality of evil. But if you reject God, you end up with just obscenity. Just an obscene view of evil. So to the great artist holds those two in tension. And, and uses uh, the, the works of the imagination to... Uh, apprehend God's truth. And the the three great transcendentals are truth, goodness, and beauty. The artist deals in all three because ultimately all three are the same. All all, all three are the same. There's only one God. Was it Keats said, truth is beauty, beauty is truth, that's all you know on earth and all you need to know. You left out goodness. But the three of those Are transcendental. So the great artist, through the medium that that he or she is working in—painting, music, poetry, literature, novels—leads us to 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 perceive, at least partially, those ultimate truths. What T.J. mentioned—the permanent things: truth, beauty, and goodness, which which are attributes of God. Does that make sense? So what I'm trying to get at is the greatness of the artist is depends upon his or her ability to hold those two things in tension and to use the the, uh, material around him to lead us to an apprehension of truth, beauty, and goodness. Even though the story might be ugly, because the artist never rejects the great artist never rejects the world around him, which which is uh, if he did it would simply be sentimental, would be it would be fairy tales, it would be it wouldn't be it wouldn't be great art. At the same time, what most art today does is reject the vertical dimensions, reject God, so it just becomes. Who has it said just one damn thing after another? Doesn't really mean anything. So after a point, is uh, why? Why bother? You know, why? 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 Why bother with with the artist that simply? Uh, I'll make my sister in law mad here, but the artist that simply <laughs> throws paint on the canvas and calls it art—that's you know, My sister in is a modern artist, so she wouldn't like that, but. You know the late work of Picasso, who takes the human form and twists it all around, makes it ugly, makes it almost uh, mutilated, the human human form. Anyway, the other great example of this that the artist that Flannery O'Connor talks about is the incarnation. Jesus is both of these. That's a great Mystery of Christian Christianity, Jesus, Christ, and God, and man, and to hold those two truths in tension is is a great mystery. And that's that's what distinguishes Christianity from any other any any other religion, even remotely close. There is no other. That's when people say all religions are the same. That's just silly. There is no other religion that claims that God, who created the universe, came into it and walked around and died and rose again. There is no other alternative. Either either that's true or or it's not. But that the ultimate reality is the incarnation. It's what what's called, what's called about two minutes, you are the hypostatic union between God and God that Jesus is true God and true man. How in the world could it be both? Can you figure that out? Can you imagine that? Not really. That's but that's the truth we have to accept. That that Christ is God and man. So where these two come together. Where the, where the divine creation penetrates re, human reality, reality is uh, 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 what T.S. Eliot called the steel point of the turning world. It's a great concept at the steel point of the turning world, where where God penetrates his reality constantly. So if you, if you did this constantly into a spinning wheel and the very point of that spin, the very still point of that wheel is where we exist in the present moment because past and the future don't mean anything anyway if you think about it we exist in in that present moment where God penetrates reality and that's what the great artist shows through poetry, or works, or songs, or music, that it's what, uh, it's a paradox, that's the last word I'll leave you with, a paradox, all truth in a sense is a paradox, you know what a paradox is, an apparent contradiction that contains a truth, contains it's actually true, God is man and, Jesus is man and God, that's a contradiction, but it's true. We have free will and God's in charge. God is three and God is one. Those paradoxes. That's what the great artist. There's a line in one of Bob Dylan's songs that says, I'm a stranger in a strange land, but I know this is where I belong. So, what does that mean? <laughs> it means, I don't, there's no other place I am other than right here. And even though I can't ever feel wholly at home here, even though my ultimate home, ultimate truth is God, I am here right now. And this is where I'm going to make my art from, not not somewhere that doesn't exist. So anyway, that's what uh, as we look at T.S. Eliot and Flannery O'Connor and Bob Dylan and Jane Austen, we're going to see how. how they create works that uh, that lead us out of ourselves into uh, into ultimate reality.